Hey, it's Andrew, the director of Literary Arts. Here at Literary Arts, we rely on our community, people like you, for support. To help make this podcast and all our programming possible, give today. Literary-arts.org forward slash donate. Welcome to the Archive Project. I'm Andrew Proctor, Executive Director of Literary Arts. The Archive Project is a retrospective of some of the most engaging talks from the world's best writers from more than 35 years of literary arts in Portland. In this episode, we feature Nobel laureate V.S. Naipaul. The storied career of Naipaul spans more than a half century. In his lifetime, he was compared to Conrad, Dickens, and Tolstoy. Born in Trinidad to an Indo-Trinidadian family, he lived a peripatetic life, traveling the world constantly, though ultimately based in England. He often stirred controversy with strong opinions and was sometimes accused of being an apologist for colonialism, who yet, to quote his obituary in the New York Times, quote, exempted neither colonizer nor colonized from his scrutiny. He infuriated and delighted critics and readers with his contradictions. For example, he scoffed at multiculturalism, yet celebrated diverse societies. And he declared novels a 19th century relic, and yet continued to write them. Naipaul came to Portland on the occasion of the publication of India, A Million Mutinies Now, in the fall of 1990. The book was the third installment of travelogues about his ancestral India, at a time when the nation was in the midst of a massive transformation. The trilogy was important for being part of a new and pioneering category of nonfiction that documented the lives of regular people in a style more similar to a novel, a style we are now all so familiar with. In writing about India and its people, Naipaul is both an outsider and an insider, and this is what gives him a unique perspective. And in this episode, he gives us an intimate look at the lives of both the wealthy upper class and also their servants. The stories take us from palaces to slums to the homes of the burgeoning middle class, and his writing is attentive to the details and sympathetic to his subjects. Here's Naipaul. Thank you. I'll be reading three, two or possibly three selections from this, uh, this book. Depends how, how it goes, really. If I feel that I'm losing you, I probably, you might only get two. It, uh, the book is an exploration of um, an old civilization through the experiences of people who live within it, rather than a pronouncement from a distance by the writer on the people or the country he sees. I did write books like that before, but uh, my method has changed and evolved and developed, as methods should, so that we don't write the same books all the time. And I have arrived finally at this way of writing. And uh, I thought that if one could take the human experiences of people, they would, by, their, by, what, by what they've lived through, define the very thing they are up against. It's as though people in, in a dark room, all of them were to feel a certain object. 
and what the people might be different, but at the end, if they reported accurately enough on what they were feeling, you might get an idea of the volume of the object they were talking about. That's the method of this book. But the writer is very much in, in command. The theme of the book is the theme of rebellions. It's called A Million Mutinies, an ancient civilization now subject to internal rebellion. A civilization ruled, uh, well, until quite recently by myth, ritual, now developing the ideas of the individual being responsible for himself, but doing that very, very slowly. There are many kinds of rebellions or mutinies that the book deals with. Re mutinies against history, against the Muslim invaders of India, against the British, and within the Hindu majority, mutinies against the upper caste, especially the Brahmins. Much of the civilization of India, the culture of India that the outside world knows, is essentially a civilization of the upper caste, and the Brahmin would be, the Brahmins are among the, up, the upper caste. Uh, much of Indian science, oddly enough, depends on this Brahmin element, the priestly element. It's as though the, the performing of rites, the learning by heart of difficult texts, the performing of pujas every day in one's house, the stillness that uh, people can arrive at from those disciplines, as though that went over quite easily to science in a couple of generations. But I'm not talking about that kind of Brahmin tonight. My first extract is about a Brahmin. It's about a Brahmin who's been overtaken by the modern world without really understanding, until the very end, the changes that have happened. He's the Brahmin who served the last Maharaja of Mysore. Mysore is in the, the south of India. Um, there were two kinds of Indian states in the old days of, the Briti of British rule. There were those areas that the British had not really conquered, but had come to control through treaties with, with rulers. These remained princely states, although effectively the British controlled them. And then there were the states more directly ruled by the British. Mysore was a princely state, and it was a very well-run princely state, much admired. So we will now talk about the Maharaja's Pandit. People of all conditions spoke with respect of the days of the old Maharajas, and there was a reminder of old Mysore glory in the three-mile-long wall of the palace park in the center of the city of Bangalore. The palace there had been only the summer palace of the Maharajas. It stood deep within the park and couldn't be seen from the road. The park itself, immensely valuable as land alone, was now the subject of, of litigation and was closed to the public. The main palace of the ruling family was in Mysore city, 100 miles to the south. I heard from Devia. Devia was a young journalist. He wrote about science for the local paper and I had got to know him and we became friends. It is necessary in these journeys always to spend a certain amount of time cultivating these friendships because these are the people who guide you 
to what they know. And without them, one wouldn't be such a good or detailed traveler. I heard from Devia that there was still a barber in Mysore city who had been in the service of the 25th and last Maharaja. There was also, Devia said, a Brahmin who had acted as a pundit of some sort to the Maharaja. Baba was said to be full of stories, but I was very nervous of Baba's stories. And Devia and I went to Mysore one day just to see the Brahmin. The road to the south was good, one of the roads of the old Mysore state. It was shaded for long stretches by the big rain trees that had been planted in the time of the Maharajas and were now looked upon almost as part of the continuing bounty of the old rulers. And there were rich green fields that had come into being because of the irrigation works undertaken in the 20s by the famous chief minister of the 24th Maharaja. Mysore city was built around the palace. We had a glimpse of part of the palace grounds as we entered the city. They looked tempting, but that spaciousness and splendor were for later. Our business that morning lay in the city itself, in a small concrete marriage hall where the former pundit, which the former pundit of the Maharaja was now supervising. The marriage hall was new and quite ordinary looking, concrete structure, but it belonged to a foundation that had been set up by the ninth century philosopher Shankaracharya. So the pundit, though he might appear to be doing commercial work now, was still close to religion. He was a small man of 72. Three broad bands of white ran horizontally across his forehead, and there was a red and sandalwood dot between his eyebrows. He had a gold-set ruby earring in each ear. His white tunic was buttoned over a small belly, and this belly was curiously narrow and long, so that, buttoned up in the tunic, the pundit appeared to have the shape of a cucumber. <laughs> the white holy marks on his forehead came from the ash of burnt cow dung. The cow dung was burnt for that purpose on a special day, Shivratri, Shiva's night. Devia told this story about Shivratri. Every day, he said, Shiva watches over the world, but there is one day when he falls asleep, and Hindus on that day or night have to stay awake to watch. We met the pundit in the office room of the marriage hall. It was a small plain room with cream-colored walls and with an iron chest in one corner and some bedding on the red concrete floor. A red telephone stood on a shelf in another corner next to a board with four keys. From a nail or a hook, a woven bag hung flat against the wall. The wall in this room, like the walls in many Indian rooms, was like a piece of furniture on its own. It was a place for putting things or hanging things. The pundit was born in 1916. His father was not from Mysore, but from the neighboring state of Tamil Nadu. He acted as an agent for an absentee landlord, and he was also a dealer in grain. The pundit's mother came from Mysore. Since it was the custom in India for women to return to their parents' house for the birth of their children, the pundit was born in Mysore. He was then taken to Tamil Nadu by his parents. But when he was ten, his father died, and his mother's father brought him back to Mysore and put him in the Sanskrit college in Mysore city. There, he had a Mysore government scholarship to the Sanskrit college because Anybody in Mysore city or Mysore who wanted to study Sanskrit was given a scholarship. 
He started with a scholarship of two rupees a month, about 16 pence. That was about 80 cents. Two rupees a month. Quite enough, though, for a boy of 10 in 1926. The salary of a first division clerk at that time was 30 rupees. The pundit was not a fluent talker. He waited for questions, one by one, gave simple replies, and Devia translated these simple replies, one by one. Devia translated for me what the pundit said, this. It was my grandfather who put me in the college. He was a cook in the palace, and I don't know whether he knew about the scholarship when he put me in the college. We weren't living in the palace. We were living in a rented house outside the palace. My grandfather used to cook for the palace pujas, the palace rituals, religious ceremonies. He cooked the food that was consecrated. He earned 18 rupees a month. That's about $7.50 at the time. Though he was a cook at the palace, he never ate there. He ate at home. This was his custom as a Brahmin. He lived for 92 years, the pundit said. The pundit studied at the Sanskrit college for 20 years, from 1926, when he was 10, to 1946. Over those years, the two-rupee scholarship he had started with was increased bit by little bit. One of the important things he studied during these 20 years was astrology. He studied that for all of five years. He had a teacher, he said, who was a very famous astrologer. The pundit said, there is no end to learning as an astrologer. Just as science keeps on developing with new discoveries, so I've not stopped learning about astrology. On the desk at which the pundit sat was a little dark blue or gray plastic bag, plastic and not leather, because leather was the skin of an animal and unclean. On the wall above the pundit's head was a framed color picture of the god Shiva and his consort. Light had bleached the colors. Both figures had been given as much beauty as the artist could give, and it was a feminine beauty of an almost erotic nature. The pundit said, we can tell a person's blood group by the day he was born. We have three blood groups, and we can say whether people are compatible or not. They don't have to take a blood test. To learn astrology, the pundit said, you first have to learn all the other sciences. Before you prescribe certain medicines, you have to look for certain planetary conditions, because certain medicines work only under certain circumstances. Certain medicines work only under the rays of the sun, or the moon, or Mars, or Mercury. He said he could predict the future. If you give the correct time of birth, but it has to be down to the minute, I will tell you everything correctly. If, though, there's a minute's error, it makes a world of difference. The place is also important. That was how the pundit studied. In 1946, after 20 years, he came to the end of his studies at the Sanskrit College. He had lived for all this time on his scholarship from the state government. In, the, in his last year at the college, this scholarship was 15 rupees a month. I would say about $5 or $3. He was now 30, and he was at last free to get married. He married the daughter of a man who worked as a clerk in the palace. He also found a job. He became librarian of the same Sanskrit college at a salary of 45 rupees a month, just under $10. And he stayed in that job for 16 years. One of the projects he worked on as librarian of the Sanskrit college was the translation of the Puranas, 
the sacred old text of Hinduism into Kannada, the local Mysore language. This project was sponsored by the Maharaja, and the Pandit's work on the translations came to the Maharaja's notice. The Maharajas in India had lost their titles in 1956, but they still had their privy purses, and in Mysore, the Maharaja still had considerable ceremonial standing as state governor, Raja Pramukh. One day in 1962, on a day of the full moon, the Pandit had finished his puja, his devotions, his ritual prayers, and was sitting at home when a servant came from the palace. The servant had been sent by the Maharaja's secretary, and the message was that the Pandit was wanted at the palace by the Maharaja. The Maharaja would have told his aide-de-camp, and the ADC would have told the secretary, and the secretary would have told his servant. The Pandit must already have had some idea of what the Maharaja wanted, or he must have been given some idea by the servant, because when this call from the palace came, the Pandit straightway sent word to the palace, to both his father-in-law and his grandfather, the one a palace clerk, the other a cook. The grandfather hurried home, he was happy for his grandson's sake, but he was also nervous. He said to the pundit, you have been trained as a scholar, a vaidika, but the work you are going to do now is that of a laukika. You are going to do worldly work. You may not fit in. Think of that. But he also gave his grandson detailed instructions about how he was to behave when he came into the Maharaja's presence. At about three in the afternoon, when it would have been very hot, the pundit left his house to walk to the palace. He was dressed as a Brahmin, in his dhoti and with a shawl over his shoulders. Otherwise, he was bare above the waist. He was barefooted. It was his way. He'd never worn footwear of any kind. To this day, he never wore anything on his feet. And indeed, when I looked below the gray steel desk or table at which the pundit sat, I saw his bare feet flat on the red concrete floor, the skin dark and thickened at the soles, padded and cracked. It was no trouble either, the pundit said, to walk barebacked in the afternoon sun. He was used to that. It was about half a kilometer to the palace, about a third of a mile. He met the secretary in one of the inner rooms, and the secretary sent him in directly to the Maharaja, who was in the palace library. The library consisted of three rooms, each about 40 feet long by 25 feet wide. They were all full of books, with hardly a place to sit down. The books were in all languages, the pundit said. In one of those rooms, the Maharaja was sitting. The pundit went up to him and did the obeisance his grandfather had trained him in, bringing his palms together and bowing low. The Maharaja was wearing a jibba and a dhoti, and he was, the pundit said, in a social mood. I asked, what did he look like? The pundit said, he was a tall man, built like a king, hefty. He wasn't thinking only of the seated figure he'd seen that day in the library. He was thinking of the man he had later got to know. In the morning, the pundit said, after his puja, when he came out of his holy marks on his forehead, he looked like God, the Maharaja. But that wasn't the word the pundit used. He used the English word highness, pronouncing it in a way that made it sound part of the local language. The Maharaja, Highness, told the pundit that he'd been chosen to work in the palace. The pundit said, 
I hadn't applied for the job or anything, so bravely I told Highness what my grandfather had told me, that I had lived all my life as a scholar, as a Vaidhika, and couldn't now live as a worldly man, as a Laukika. And Highness said, but I'm using you here only for Vaidhika work, religious work. I want you to be Muktesar. The pundit said, I knew what the duties of a Muktesar were. They were to organize all the religious ceremonies of the palace, to choose the Purohits or priests, and to supervise what they did, to make sure that the pujas and rituals were correctly carried out. The Maharaja spoke to the pundit for half an hour. He told him what he would have to do. There were 10 permanent Purohits in the palace. The pundit would have to supervise them and all the additional Purohits who might be called in on special occasions. The pundit would also have to look after the jewels of the palace temple. People who worked in the palace were given a special allowance of 20 rupees a month, about $4. And the Maharaja told the pundit that henceforth he'd be getting this allowance. The allowance was given because palace staff were on call all the time and had no holidays. The salary itself, though, would be 150 rupees. As, as librarian of the Sanskrit College, the pundit was getting 45 rupees a month. The pundit said, it was my duty to do it. Whatever Highness said, I, I had to do. I was already, anyway, an employee of Highness because the Sanskrit College belonged to Highness. After his audience in the library, the pundit walked back to his family house. He told his father-in-law and grandfather the news, and his grandfather was pleased. He said, we've all got good names in the palace. You should do your work well and keep our good name there. As someone working in the palace, the pundit had to have a uniform. He immediately went to the palace tailor to be measured. He ordered two suits. And the charge was 200 rupees, more than a month's salary. But for some reason, the Maharaja wanted the pundit to start working in the palace right away. So the pundit was in a quandary about what to wear. The uniforms he'd ordered from the tailor weren't going to be ready for some days. The pundit said, I did a mad thing. I borrowed my father-in-law's uniform. We were the same build. And that was a mad thing to do because a Brahmin shouldn't wear other people's clothes. It was as unclean as drinking from a vessel used by someone else. For three days, the pundit said, I wore my father-in-law's uniform. Then I had my own from the palace tailor, the two suits. I got them on credit. I didn't have the 200 rupees. I paid with my salary, paid it off in three or four installments. He wore white trousers and a long coat. The coat was white for the morning, black at night. And he also wore the Mysore turban, white with a gold band. And he got a white sash. No shoes. Inside the palace, no one wore shoes, not even the Maharaja. The Maharaja wore shoes only outside the palace. On the cream-colored wall of the marriage hall office where we were talking, there were fingerprints of grime, the eternal grime of India. And, as in an Indian city street, where nothing was absolutely clean or absolutely finished, there was in this room, in the corner with the iron chest, a lot of half-swept-up dust and old fluffy dirt, together with the rags and the broom that might have done the sweeping and the wiping. The pundit's working hours as palace muktesa were long. They were from six in the morning to two in the afternoon. He would go home then for an hour, 
and go back to the palace and stay till seven. That was on ordinary days. On certain days, like the days of the Dussehra festival, the pundit could stay at the palace until midnight. This was because at Dussehra the temple jewels were on display and the pundit would have to stay and see that the jewels were put back in the palace vault. When the Maharaja was away on camp, the pundit was free and could rest. The Maharaja went away on camp four or five times a year for 15 days or so at a time. Sometimes the pundit said the Maharaja went abroad. Then he was away for a month. The pundit said, Highness used to go on pilgrimages. Highness had this habit that if he read in an old text, a Purana, about a certain temple in any part of the country, he would say, let's go there. The next day he'd be ready and about 25 people would go with him. He had one or two special railway coaches which would be attached to the scheduled trains. He used to take cooks, bodyguards, a purohit, an astrologer. Sometimes he used to take his family. Highness had a craze for visiting temples. There is no temple he didn't see. He was such a devotee. In 1965, the pundit, as Muktesar, was allowed quarters, a small house with two rooms and a hall. The rent was 10% of his salary. Three years later, in 1968, he was given a special ceremonial uniform. He didn't have to pay for this uniform. It was a gift of the Maharaja. The long coat was red with gold facings and gold buttons. The buttons had a phoenix symbol and the letters JCRW, which were the initials of the Maharaja, Jaya Chamara Jendra Wadeyar. The trousers were of silk and biscuit colored. I wondered whether that costume wasn't, hadn't been a little too gory for him as a Brahmin. But he said, I was proud of it. When I wore that costume, nobody could stop me anywhere in the street or in the palace. He even had himself photographed in it. He rose in the service. The Maharaja called him Shastri Narayan, Lord of the Shastras, Lord of the Text, great scholar. But then there began to be signs of things going bad outside. In 1971, the Maharajas of India were de-recognized by Mrs. Gandhi's government. And the Maharaja lost his tax-exempt privy purse of two and a half million rupees, worth of, worth of that time, after the devaluation of 1967, about 130,000 pounds, about $300,000. Still, the Maharaja continued to promote his Muktesar. In 1972, the Muktesar was appointed assistant secretary. There were two assistant secretaries in the palace. The pundit had entered the palace at a salary of 150 rupees a month. Over the years, this had doubled to 300. Now, as assistant secretary, he was getting 500. The pundit said, Highness received the catalogues of various booksellers. He ordered 300 to 400 books a month. The palace secretary bought them for him. Highness bought penguins, and Highness bought books of the Oxford University Press. I had to read or look over or taste the new books and give a summary to Highness of books I thought might interest him. He was interested in philosophy and history. He talked about philosophy with me and with others. Highness liked to have a scrapbook. I knew the sort of thing that interested him and would point certain passages out to him. Certain passages he would want typed out for his own speeches and writings. Highness had two crazes, two madnesses, 
The first was temples. The second, books, buying them and reading them. He used to read them throughout the night. I was associated with both of Highness's madnesses. In his reading room, he allowed no one else. He had his own system of arranging or storing books. He kept them on the floor. No one was to touch them while they were there. When he had finished with the book, he brought it to me and asked me to catalog it and put it on the library shelves. I wanted to know what English books the Maharaja read and discussed with his Muktesar, his Shastri Narayan, his Lord of the, script, of, the, of the Scriptures. I was expecting to hear the names of Aldous Huxley, Bertrand Russell, Christopher Isherwood, but the Pandit couldn't help me. He couldn't remember the name of a single English writer. In 1973, two years after the Maharajas had been de-recognized, there was a strike by the palace staff for better pay. At one time, there had been 500 workers in the palace. At the time of the strike, there were 300. The Maharaja gave the strikers the increases they asked for, but it was too much for him. The next year, everybody on the palace staff was given a gratuity and sent away. The pandit himself was given 19,000 rupees, nearly 1,000 pounds. That was about $2,000. But not long afterwards, the Maharaja sent for him and five or six others and took them back. He continued to be Muktesar and assistant secretary, and the work was just as hard as it had been. For some people, the pandit said, highness never changed. But there had been a price for the Maharaja's favor. Because of his irregular eating habits, the pandit said, he had developed an ulcer as a Brahmin. It wasn't possible for him to eat outside his own house. He couldn't eat at the palace. Even his grandfather, who'd been a cook at the palace for many years, had never eaten there. And because of the long hours the pandit had had to work at the palace, his digestion had become disorganized. One day in 1974, when he was 58, the pandit began vomiting blood. He was taken to the hospital. He stayed there for eight days. He was about to be discharged when the news came that the Maharaja had died. That was how it had happened, as suddenly as that. The doctors advised the pundit not to think about the Maharaja's death. It would be bad for him. They postponed his discharge from the hospital. They kept him in for two more days. So, after all the years of personal attendance as Muktesar, superintendent of religious ceremonies, the pandit had not been present for the death of the Maharaja and the important rites afterwards. The pandit said, to this day I try not to think about Highness's death. I didn't think he was exaggerating. A story we had heard, Devi and I, had come out with much trouble. It had taken many hours. For nearly 50 years, a student, librarian, Muktesar, the pandit had lived on the bounty of the Maharajas. And for 12 years, he'd personally served the Maharaja. But the story of his life and his service with the Maharaja existed in his mind as a number of separate episodes, separate little stories. He had never before, I think, made a connected narrative out of those little stories. After he left the hospital, he stayed home for a year. And then he saw this job as manager of the marriage hall advertised and he took it. He said, it's a job. I wanted to know whether he'd really succeeded in putting such an important and long part of his life out of his mind. 
Did no feelings now remain in him for the palace? The pundit said, no feelings. The times are not suitable for that kind of living anymore. Times have changed. He said the word simply, without any stress. There was still a royal family in Mysore, but there was no Maharaja now. The son of the former Maharaja was a member of parliament on the Congress side. Four times a year now, the pundit went to the palace to make offerings to the head of the Mysore royal family. He went as a Brahmin, as he'd always gone, barebacked with a dhoti and shawl and barefooted. But now he didn't go as an employee or palace servant. He went as a man in his own right. He went as a representative of a great and ancient religious foundation, though he just managed a marriage hall for them. And the gifts he took were not a retainer's gifts, but priestly offerings, a garland, two coconuts, and kumkum for the red holy marks on the forehead. That was the end of the pundit story. What later came out was how selective the vision of that man had been. What came out was that nothing in his account had prepared me for the extravagance of the palace where he'd gone for the interview and where he'd worked for so many years. The palace had taken 15 years to build after fire had destroyed the old Mysore palace. 15 years from 1897 to 1912. Just after, to think of comparable extravagance, the Vanderbilt Chateau at Biltmore in Tennessee. A European architect had designed the Mysore Palace and it answered every kind of late 19th century British Raj idea of what an Indian palace should be. Scalloped mogul arches, Scottish stained glass made to an Indian peacock design. In the main hall, hollow cast iron pillars painted blue made in England to a decorated pattern and the guide still knew the name of the manufacturers. Marble and tile floors with mogul style pietra dura, white marble inset with colored stones and floral patterns, and with Edwardian tiles. What was also left out in that account was that when the Maharaja was away from Mysore, he sometimes, quite often, went shooting in Africa. And one of the most important rooms in the palace was the trophy room. There was a famous stuffer of animals in Mysore, and he was one of the men the Maharaja kept rather busy. And among the, um, the trophies, there was a, the towering neck and head of a startled-looking giraffe. And another trophy was the lower curving half of an elephant's trunk, which had somehow been made rigid and converted into an ashtray or ash bin, with an iron grill at the top for stubbing out cigarettes and cigars. And uh, what had also been left out, the pundit's account, was that the Maharaja had died badly. There were many stories about the way the Maharaja had died. People said various things. He had borrowed far too much from local businessmen. That was one story. Another was that he'd had unsuitable favorites. A third story was that he'd been involved in a lawsuit and the prospect of having his ancient name naked without its titles shouted three times by a court usher in a place where his word had once been law was so tormenting to him that he had taken an overdose of sedatives. One version of the death was that he had swallowed a crushed diamond. I heard from a girl, a journalist, that the swallowing of a diamond to commit suicide 
was a recurring piece of business in the local movies. People in extremity bitted the diamonds on their rings and then began writhing in agony. I was told too that the Maharaja was 55 when he died. This made him only three years younger than the Pandit, though the Pandit had said nothing of the Maharaja's age, had left all that side of the man vague. I also heard that even after his death, misfortune had followed the Maharaja. The people around him, I heard, had begun to pull off the rings from the Maharaja's fingers, and they had to pull hard because the Maharaja was extraordinarily fat. That was what was contained in the Pandit's respectful description of him as hefty, like a king, like God. Folk tales had been generated by the idea of the tragedy of the last Maharaja, derecognized, impoverished, and finally hopelessly in debt. But nothing of that had entered the Pandit's memories. He remained true to the man he had found. His memories were of the pure and devout man. He'd served indirectly and directly for 18 years. That's the end of that, the pundit of the Maharaja. I don't know whether you'd like something funny about travel or whether you'd like um, something with darker elements. If you give me some indication, I probably can, can cook something up about, about something comic. But if you, if you don't absolutely insist on it, we will do the darker thing. <laughs> when I went to India in 1962, I, um, I found a, a hotel on the lake in the northern state of Kashmir, there's a lake in the valley, a very rough and ready hotel, suited my purse and it suited my, uh, my inclinations. And they looked after me very nicely for four months and I did some writing there. But I never went back and many people who read what I wrote about the, the, um, the hotel and my time there often sent me photographs. This time, I thought we were all getting rather old, and I'd better go and catch them before they disappeared. We all went away before we all uh, vanished. Um, and I found a changed world. Uh, you will hear. One of the men who looked after me in the hotel was a man called Aziz. He couldn't read or write. Instead, he had the most prodigious social sense and ability to read human character without, you see, because he wasn't, um, he wasn't encumbered by, uh, by reading. He could just respond absolutely in a clean way to a human presence. So wonderful memory and a wonderful social instinct. And he was also very good at languages. You're doing it all by ears. Anyway, that was Aziz. When I went back, I, the man who looked after me was Aziz's son, quite a different kind of fellow, very smartly dressed, Taiwan, dark blue uh, uh, down jacket and uh, nice haircut and things like that. Quite different, quite different. But he looked after me like his father and probably at his father's request. Nazir and I went on a tour. We said, Let's call this a Sunday at the lake, Sunday afternoon at the lake, on the lake. Nazir and I went on a tour of the lake. 
we'd hardly pushed off from the hotel landing stage when the little begging children appeared, paddling fast, throwing sprigs of mustard flowers into our boat and saying in a sibilant whisper, at once demure and penetrating, bakshish, bakshish. There were no begging children when I was there. This is a feature of the new overpopulation and, uh, of the lake. The population of Kashmir has exploded. Nazir gave them one or two rupees each. He said, if you don't give them money, they won't go away. He was as tender with the salesman, allowing our boat to be delayed just long enough to give offense neither to the salesman nor to me. After we had passed the long row of houseboats, we were in open water and no one came near. We passed what I remembered or had remembered as the Maharaja's Lake Pavilion. A memory came to me of a poplar-lined causeway between the Lake Boulevard and the Lake Pavilion. There was no causeway now. In 1962, I had had tea in the Lake Pavilion one day with the Maharaja, Karan Singh, and his wife. The hill beside the lake where we were the setting for our tea was spectacular. The pavilion, the lake all around, the mountains, the poplar-lined causeway, the long drive rising between orchards and gardens of the palace. I asked who had designed it all. I was expecting to hear the name of an architect. Karan Singh, looking around, simply said, Daddy. That had fixed the moment for me. But now there was no royal causeway, no tall poplars, only openness, a breeze picking up strength across the water and blowing our boat against the rough poles and the slack, rusting strands of barbed wire around the pavilion island where the buildings looked damp and closed, awaiting summer and people. Nazir and the boat boy between them pulled and pulled the boat around the pavilion island. The lake was still choppy, but became calm beyond a causeway laid with a big black pipe that took drinking water to the city. In the distance was the Hazrat Bal Mosque. It had a white dome and white minaret, and that whiteness stood out against the brown-black cluster of two-story and three-story houses. The dome and minaret were new. When I had been there in 1962, Hazrat Bal had been a plain mosque. There had been riots one year in Srinagar when the famous relic of the Hazrat Bal Mosque, the hair of the beard of the Prophet Muhammad, had disappeared. I asked Nazir about that hair. He said it was found in Srinagar in a private house. I was told later by someone else that a well-connected woman in Kashmir who'd fallen ill had expressed a wish to see the, the hair of the beard of the Prophet and it had been brought to her. Nazir, talking of this and that, said that he was corresponding with an English girl who'd stayed at the hotel. They wrote to one another once a month. He said with unexpected seriousness and without prompting from me, it's in God's hand whether I marry a Kashmiri or a foreign girl. Only God knows the future. And that mention of God was serious, not idiomatic. Kashmiri girls, Nazir said, were nice, but foreign girls were more experienced. And I didn't ask what he meant by that. <laughs> I asked him about religion. He said he went to the mosque every day. He went alone for half an hour or so to pray for everybody. On Fridays, he went for two and a half hours to pray with everybody else. He had been religious ever since he was 10, he said. We saw fishermen scattered, still, almost emblematic, against the open bright water, standing or lying on their low boats. 
we moved slowly towards them, coasting in the calm water after each paddle stroke. It was a wonderful moment of quiet just minutes away from the hubbub around the houseboats and the boating steps of the boulevard. From the openness, we moved to the gardens, fixed or floating. The fixed gardens were planted at their edges of willows, whose roots made a cage that, set the, that kept the soil from being washed away. Just a few hundred yards away from the tourist lake, and as though no middle way was possible, was this old agricultural life of the lake people, weeds and ferns being twirled loose from their lake bed roots by means of a curved stick, and lifted dripping, mixed with black lake mud, into the flat bottom boats, and then taken to fertilize the gardens, where weeds and mud and water were shoveled off all in one with broad wooden shovels. Women squatted and worked in spinach beds, and children worked with them, as children worked with adults everywhere in the lake, in gardens and on boats. Between the strips of gardens, the algae-covered water lanes were lined with low-hanging willows. The houses were of timber and pale red brick. People washed themselves on one side of a narrow plot, and on the other side, young girls used the water to wash pots and pans. Some men, meeting among reeds, stayed in their boats and talked, as they might have done on the street. Some men and boys fished with rod and line. A boat passed with a cottage, sea, cottage cheese cellar. Slowly, women and girls paddling their own boats, women and girls more visible here among the gardens, we came back to the busy highways of the lake, behind the houseboats. We passed a settlement among willows, rough houses of dusty red brick set in timber frames. A one-room shop stall with a platform a few feet above the water had a large photograph of the Ayatollah Khomeini of Iran, of whom I'd heard it said in Iran in 1979 by his enemies that he was really Indian and Kashmiri. Nazir said in a whisper, speaking with something like awe and nervousness and distance, as though he was speaking of people who were very strange, all this is Shia. Aziz had spoken in that way of Shias in 1962. He'd spoken of them as people different from himself. Once he'd even said that Shias were not Muslims. I had barely understood then what he had meant. One afternoon, not really knowing what I was being taken to see, knowing only that it was a Shia occasion. I had gone by boat with some hotel people to see the Muharram procession in the old town. I had remembered the occasion as a series of medieval pictures, remembering especially the pale, half-covered faces of secluded women, framed in small timber-framed upper windows, looking down at the bloody scene of self-flagellation below. It had been hard for me emerging from the soft lake world of willow-hung waterways and lotus and vegetable gardens to believe what I had so suddenly come upon. Bloodied bodies, blood-soaked clothes, chains, whips tipped with knives and razor blades, the exalted, deficient faces of the celebrants and their almost arrogant demeanor. They pushed people out of their way. I was ready to believe what I was told then, that much of the blood on display was really animal blood. I hadn't understood the religious historical charge of the occasion, the undying grief it sought to express. I had only been alarmed by it and was glad to get away from it, glad to return to myself and what I knew. Nasir said he'd been told by his father that in 1962, 
I had complained about the Shia drumming during Muhammad. And I felt now that the distance of which Nazir and his father before him had spoken of the Shias had contained some wonder that the apparently peaceable lake people we were paddling by had this other ecstatic side. It had become cloudy. Clouds came down over the mountains to one side of the lake. A strong breeze began to blow just as we were coming out of a water lane to the open water at the back of the houseboats and the hotel. The wind began to blow us back and dislodge the awning of our boat. It also kicked up the dark red or russet underside of the flat round lotus leaves, revealing where, among the reeds and the tall grass and the litter around houseboats and service boats, the lotus were. I had been looking for the lotus. The pink flowers came out in June and July. I remembered them as one of the glories of the lake. But the lotus was also a crop here, even in the wind, a man in a boat could be seen collecting lotus roots, using a special rod or tool for breaking them off underwater and pulling them into his boat. Endless, this loading and unloading of boats in the lake. Becalmed, having trouble with our awning, we were boarded by two begging children throwing mustard flowers, keeping their boat glued to ours and asking for bakshish. Nazir drove them away. It was the first time I'd heard him raise his voice, and they respected his voice. He explained, they're a bad family. Perhaps in some way they had broken the code of the lake. They were thin-faced and very small, starvelings of the lake, like so many others, yet with something predatory and disturbing in the thin-armed frenzy with which, indifferent to wind and rain, having spotted us, they'd paddled towards us. The rain returned in the afternoon. <coughs> Clouds hid the mountains and the lake misted over. The Palace Hotel felt unaired and desolate. There were few visitors. The tourist season was not starting well. The hotel staff, formally dressed, outnumbering the visitors, was subdued. The formality of their dress added to the gloom. The Harlequin bar was empty, it was serving no liquor. It was a big bar and there was no crowd now to hide its shabbiness. The carpet or carpet-like material that was stacked to the front of the bar was ragged in places. A secessionist Muslim group had been setting off bombs in public places in the city. The group had also made a number of demands. It wanted no alcohol in the state. It wanted Friday and not Sunday to be the day of rest, and it wanted non-Kashmiri residents expelled. The hotel people, while they wanted, while they waited for the authorities to take action, had met among themselves and decided to avoid trouble. That was why the Harlequin bar of the palace served no alcohol and why, until some Japanese visitors insisted, not even beer was served at dinner in the dining room. In the afternoon, in all the rain, a Muslim holy man, a peer, turned up at the hotel and it woke the place up. The peer was a very small, very thin, dark man with something like a crew cut. He was in his sixties. He wore a dark gray gown which came down to a few inches above his frail-looking ankles, and he was barefooted. He came to the hotel in a three-wheel motor scooter, and when he got out, he was carrying a telescopic umbrella. Six cars full of people were following his scooter. The peer appeared to be in a rage, he began to shout as he got to the hotel desk, shouting, waving his umbrella, 
seizing the arm of a foreign woman tourist, then letting her go, he raged down a corridor, knocking down and hitting things in his way. The staff didn't object. The holy man's curse was to be feared. Equally, his blessing was to be sought. The peer behaved as he did because he was holy, and because, as someone told me, he was in direct line with God. His movements and his moods, moods couldn't be predicted, but clearly, at this moment, during this extraordinary visit to the Palace Hotel, he was in a state of high inspiration. That was why the six cars were following him. With all the risks, people were anxious to get in his way. A waiter told me that if you had the chance, if you were lucky enough, to sit in front of the peer, you didn't have to tell him of your problems. He knew about your problems right away, and always if you were lucky, he began to talk about them. And then the holy man was gone, with his gown and umbrella, and then his scooter, and the six cars chased after him, leaving the hotel staff to return to themselves. At 7.11, one minute later than the day before, the mullahs called from the mosques around the lake, announced that the sun had set and believers could break their day-long Ramadan fast. Religion, faith, there seemed to be no end to it, no end to its demands. It was like part of the nerves of the overpopulated, overprotected valley. While the Maharajas ruled, Hindu Maharajas and Kashmir, Hindu sentiment had been protected in the valley. The killing of a cow, for instance, was a criminal offense, punishable by rigorous imprisonment. The portraits of the Maharajas, Karan Singh's ancestors, were still there on the main staircase of the building, beyond the main dining room. Some of the worn carpets in the hotel now had been in the palace in 1962. They had been specially woven. There had been some talk about them one evening. On a subsequent evening, the burning head of a guest cigarette had fallen on the carpet we'd talked about and created a burn spot. Karan Singh had not flinched, had not expressed by a hesitation in speech or a glance that he was concerned or had even noticed. His family had ruled for more than a century here. His princely ways were instinctive. It was also interesting for me to see how rulers manage more everyday things. We went to the cinema in Srinagar, that's the town, one evening. We went late and left early before the lights came up, and then we raced back to the palace. I asked Karan Singh's wife one day whether they stopped us at food stalls, roast sweet corn stalls, for instance, at sweet corn time. She said they did, and their practice was to pay more than was asked, leaving me wondering, even now, whether... With that tradition, the ruler was asked less than his subject or more. Thank you. Good night. Thank you. That was V.S. Naipaul from Poor the Dots and Lectures in 1990. This has been Literary Arts, the Archive Project. It's a retrospective of some of the most engaging talks from the world's best writers from more than 35 years of literary arts in Portland. The Archive Project is produced in collaboration with Oregon Public Broadcast. To hear more, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Our show is produced by Crystal Liguori and Matthew Workman for Radio and Podcast, with oversight by Amanda Bullock and support from Liz Olofsson and Alberto Swim, 
and I'm the executive producer. Special thanks to the Literary Arts marketing staff, Joe T. Roy and Hope Levy, and the entire Literary Arts staff, board, and community. The show would not be possible without them. Thanks also to the band Emancipator for our theme music, and thanks to all of you for listening. I'm Andrew Proctor, and this has been another episode of the Archive Project from Literary Arts. Join us next time and find your story here. Here.